Good morning. Good to see you guys. Looks like some of you are back from vacation. Welcome back. Better. I don't know where you all came from. And the whiteboard is back. Okay. It's good to be back. I, I was gone. I know I was here last Sunday, but I took a few days off. My wife and I went up to Napa to visit my cousin and her husband who has cancer. We talked about that before and got to see and be with them, and it was great. Enjoyed our time, but it's good to be back. I think we missed some of the heat, but not all of it, because here we are today. And so, Anyway, we're continuing our series on perspective. We've been looking at how the way we view things is so important to the decisions that we are going to make. We talked originally about our belief in God or if we don't believe in God and how that will affect our life and the things that we see around us. Last week, we talked about what church is. And I want to thank you guys. I had a lot of you come up and say you appreciated that talk. We wanted to make clear what has happened in history to what is known as church and what was the original intention. And we talked about the words for gathering and how it became then the house of the Lord and it started evolving into this place where you meet instead of a movement that was taking place. And originally I was going to include the Bible in that topic because some of the history is going to overlap, but I thought this is too important to just try and cover quickly, and I want it to be clear. So we're going to talk about the the Bible today and our perspective on the Bible because like everything else, if our perspective is wrong, it can take us down some wrong paths. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity that all our vices are virtues that have gone astray that a lot of times the things that end up being a problem for us might have started off as being something good, but it got tainted, it it was corrupted, and it ended up becoming something bad. And there's so many things like that in life that we can think about where love can become something less than what it's supposed to, and addictions can move from a place of being passionate about something to being dependent on something. And the same thing can be true with the Scriptures. The Scriptures are good, but if we have a wrong conception of them, it can actually lead, I think, to some things that are detrimental. And so I want to try and talk about these things. You know, I was at a study one time and I heard a pastor talking about the Bible. And he said that the Bible needs to be revered. And I think he got this from Warren Wiersbe because I think I read that one time in one of his commentaries. But what he said is, so when you have your desk and there's all these books on your desk, the Bible should be the book that's on top. You shouldn't have other books on top of the Bible because you should give it that respect and that reverence. And I remember as I was hearing that, I thought, huh, because I always think, huh, that's where my thoughts originate. They originate with, huh. 
I remember reading about a village in China where they only had one copy of the scriptures. And what they did is they tore out the pages and dispersed them to all the people in the community, and then they committed to memorizing those portions of Scripture that they had so that they could understand that portion and then give it to another family, and then they could rotate so that they could all learn what the Scriptures say. And I thought, here's a contrast. Here's one person saying the Bible should be put on top of every book and revered, and here's a place where they're tearing out the pages so that they can memorize them. Which one is showing more respect? And again, this is where our perspective comes in. See, there's nothing wrong with showing reverence to the Scripture. I don't think you should just throw it on the floor, those kinds of things. But there's something that was happening in that village that I think is more in line to what is necessary than what's happening on top of a desk for study. And so these are the kind of things that we want to look at. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, open to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. We'll set some foundational things. And as you guys know, even though this study is on the Bible, I usually call it the Scriptures. In fact, if you need a copy of the Scriptures, raise your hand and Alex will get you one. And the reason being is I feel that it is more informative It gives us a little bit more clarity. When you say the Bible, you tend to think of one book, and the scriptures are 66 different books compiling this, what we call one book. And so I think it's a little bit clearer to understand it in that way than just calling it one book. We've given it the term for our sake, but originally they were different scriptures. But start in uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 10 says, you, however, Paul speaking to Timothy, know all about my teaching. This is Paul's teaching. My way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. In other words, me and those like me. And how from infancy... You have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And and so starting off in this foundation, what we want to recognize or want to at least let you know, is we believe that the scriptures, all these books that compose the Bible, are God-breathed, are inspired by God, are divinely given, that the Holy Spirit moved upon the men that wrote these things, and as they were moved by the Spirit, they penned the things that were wanting to be written. All the good, all the bad, all the ugly. It's all there. 
And that's one of the things we appreciate about the scriptures is the honesty, even as like Cody was saying, you know, we're in Second Samuel and it's getting good, he said, you know, it's getting intense, you know, there's all the, the calamity that's taking place, the dysfunction of David and his family that we see that we can identify with, at least some of us. And so they're there in their honesty. They're there for us to to learn, to be reproved, to be corrected, trained up in righteousness. This is what we believe. But what we call the scriptures and how we got the scriptures, I, I think it's important for us to take a little journey, and hopefully I won't be boring in this history lesson, but I want to try and bring some clarity of what we have today, where it's come from, and why we see things many times the way we do. When Paul wrote this letter and the others to Timothy and to the churches, what he did was write manuscripts. He'd write on a papyrus. This is a manuscript. And these manuscripts would then be given to people like Timothy, would be given to a person like Philemon, would be given to the church in Galatia, at Ephesus, Philippi, All these manuscripts started going to these different places, these different people in these different communities. I'm just making houses so that you understand they went to these different places because the church, remember, met at homes originally. And so what the gathering of people would do is they would get this writing from Paul the Apostle and they would read it and it would give them information about Jesus and about how they're to conduct themselves because remember, this is all new. When Paul is writing all scripture, he is referring to the Old Testament writings because that's what they had. The New Testament wasn't yet written. It was being written. And so now this information that Jesus who is the promised Messiah, has come, well, what does this do? How does this change us? How does this affect us? Paul would write, well, concerning, say, to the the church in Rome, concerning festivals, you don't have to keep the religious Jewish traditions. There's something new that is taking place. Those were a shadow, and this is the fulfillment. And he started bringing clarity to the things that were talked about. In fact, many times, most of the times, when you read in Scripture... The Word of God, the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. When you hear the term, the Word of God, what do you usually think? What does it mean? The Bible. How could it mean the Bible when it wasn't yet written like we have? Question. I'll answer that with you later. Something is being declared, something is being brought up front so that there would be more understanding of what is taking place because of this person, the man Jesus, and what has changed. And so Paul would write manuscripts to all these different churches, to these different communities of faith, to these different people. And then what they would do is they would read these and they would start talking about those things. Those who were from the Jewish descent would also look into the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, those scriptures, and see how the things of Christ were written in the Old Testament and were coming about. In fact, the book of Hebrews deals with that very intentionally. And so these writings were to bring a bear 
to bear the newness of what is taking place through the person of Jesus. But then, you know, the first, you know, couple of weeks you read your letter from Paul and you've got it down and you've read it, but then you find out, hey, Paul wrote a letter to this community too. Oh, really? Is there any way we can get it? Sure. They copied it and they would send it to these communities. And so now you start getting a collection of these manuscripts that start showing up in these different communities. And it starts coming predominant, where there are thousands of these manuscripts that Paul wrote that are handed out to these different communities, these different churches throughout the region, that pretty soon the church at Ephesus might have three or four different manuscripts that were written, maybe to Philippi, to the church in Galatia, these different things. But there is a plethora of manuscripts that are taking place. You guys like that word? That are happening here in this community. And so now people are having this common mind of what is taking place because these writings are giving them guidance and clarity. They're helping them to understand. And as we went through the book of Acts, we saw how important this was. In chapter 7, there was this meeting in Jerusalem where they said, what are we going to do with all these Gentiles who are now believing in Jesus? And some were saying, well, we need to have them hold to the Jewish traditions. They need to be circumcised. They need to follow the law. And Paul and Barnabas and some others said, no, Christ did not come to bring us back into the law. He has come to set us free from the law. And we shouldn't put them under a burden that we ourselves could not bear. And so at that council, they said that the Gentiles do not have to keep the law. And we are so glad they did. And it started this new movement. Christianity, they're like Jesus. And the gospel, which means good news, is that this person, Jesus, has come, has died for our sins, and has given us a newness of life. And so that is the word of God. It is the gospel message. When you go out through the New Testament and you see the word of God, it's referring to the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, not the writings the message, and I'll hopefully explain why this is important and the clarity that is necessary. Okay, so these manuscripts are being written, and then we remember that in 313, Constantine, the emperor of Rome, says that he's a Christian. He no longer professes to be God, but he professes that Jesus is God, and there is a sweeping change that takes place. Christianity is now the accepted religion of the empire. And that changed everything as we saw last week. And so what starts to happen now is these places of meetings start actually getting into buildings and they start being more controlled, more organized. And then what's taking place is because this movement is becoming so widely known, so predominant, that a lot of people are jumping on the bandwagon. A lot of people are throwing in their beliefs. There's Gnosticism. There's different beliefs that all material is evil and God is only spirit. So Jesus wasn't really a person. He was just a spirit. And so Paul writes to argue against those things and those writings are there. But every now and then there is a writing that comes out 
like the gospel of Judas. And you're saying, what? I didn't know there was a gospel of Jesus. Well, yeah, some guy wrote the gospel of Jesus around 300 AD. There's only one copy, just like there is a gospel of Peter and some other writings that aren't in our Bibles. And you say, what? Why? Remember the Da Vinci Code a few years back? This was all supposed to be, oh, there's the gospel of Judas. I never, it's a secret. No, it's not a secret. It just wasn't worth producing. There is one copy written about 300 years after the event. Why should I give credence to, you know, Joe the sandwich guy who wrote a book called the gospel of Judas and say that it's okay? Because that's essentially what's taking place. Someone decided, I want to write something about Jesus so that I will. And so what happens at this time is there is a group of people that gather together to put what we call the canon of Scripture together. All the writings that are authentic, that we can verify are true and were circulated at the time that the movement of Christ was taking place. We want to get all those documents and we want to compile something that is reliable. And so the canon of Scripture, as it's called, took place and it started gathering together and developing all these things throughout this period of time so that the books that we now have were compiled and what we have as the Bible were then put together at this time based on the circulation that was taking place and the verifying of the people who wrote it. There were some problems or some issues. The book of Hebrews, it doesn't have an author. And so they weren't sure if they should include the book of Hebrews or not because there was no author, but it was so widely circulated and they felt that the writing was there to point to God and not just to the book itself, that it wasn't necessary. The book of James, they wondered, should we include the book of James? It seems to contradict the, the writings of Paul. Paul says that we are justified by faith and, and then James is telling us about justification taking place in the works that we do. And so they were confused and wondering what should we do. Thankfully, they included it because they just had a wrong perspective. Hey, there's another one. And so what took place is all these books that were identified with the early authors, the early writings, now became the canon of Scripture, which is the Bible that we have. They said, these are the books that are verifiable, that are reliable. We trust these things. Thank God they did that. Otherwise, we'd have the Gospel of Judas, and we'd have the writings of all these other people that would just be put in there, and they would have been just polluting the truth of the movement that took place. And so these writings are there. Peter ascribed Paul's writings as Scripture. He said many of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand as with some of the other Scriptures. So Peter gave credibility to Paul's writing in the New Testament as being God-breathed, being inspired by God, as being holy, sacred Scriptures. And so now we have sacred writings that are giving us an understanding of the events that are taking place. And, and as this is taking place, we see that there starts to become a shift. Again, we talked about the shift last time where the church now became powerful, predominant, where it started having authority over the people. The people had to go to the church to be a part of this movement. The scriptures now that they had 
were only available at these places. And they were available in a Latin translation that started to become very diluted. So someone, we don't even know who, put all these scriptures that were considered sacred and authentic in Latin, the predominant language that was developing that people would speak, and they were all there, but they could only be found in these buildings. So the average community didn't have the Bible. They might have had a few copies of different manuscripts, but they didn't have the entirety of the Bible. And this was all taking place by word of mouth. Notice that when we read Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, you know about my teachings, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance. You've seen me in action. You have seen what we are supposed to live like by example. And so example was a big part of the proclamation of this message, this good news of Jesus. It was the conduct of life that was visible that helped people to identify with the truth that was being written. And so we see those things taking place, but then we see the corruption taking place where now power starts to enter in and people want to start controlling things. And now the scriptures, the entirety of them, are not available except for to a few people. And so there comes this idea, well, we need to find a way to manufacture or to make sure that these things are preserved. And so what happens is, there are some people who start to investigate to get these writings and to put them down in actual language that they could understand. But what first took place is Constantinople, the capital, fell to the Ottoman Empire. The Muslims came in, and so all the manuscripts and scriptures moved to Europe so that they could be preserved. And as they moved to Europe, there became this influx of Christian faith that starts taking place in Germany and France and different places like that. Again, there was the church power that was there, but then all of a sudden we see that people start taking the writings because they're all together and they start translating them. In fact, the first Greek New Testament translated was printed by Gutenberg in 1516. And so Constantinople fell in like 1450, 1516. Now they get all these scriptures and they translate them into one Greek New Testament for the first time. Because before that, it was all in the Latin. And then we have people who actually translated it into English 1526, William Tyndale translates the first New Testament into English, and he translated it from the Latin Vulgate, which was a kind of a reconstituted Latin view of the scriptures that was a little bit more authentic than some that were being written. And so now we have the, the scriptures written in English, all compiled together in the 1500s. Think about this. The Bible as you have it did not exist in one book form in the English language until the 1500s. Okay, it's just something to be aware of, and I'll get into this a little bit more. Now, Tyndale produced this, but after he died, the church took the scripture, the copy of it, and made it illegal to copy or to give to the people. We don't want everybody knowing what it says. We want to be in charge. And so 
the Bible as we know it is now illegal for people like us to have and to read and to hold. Isn't that amazing? What would constitute this kind of thinking? But it it starts to develop, and we talked last week about the power that is developing, and then all of a sudden there is this reformation that takes place, reformation reforming. And we have people that are rebelling against the control of the church and trying to bring this understanding of the scriptures to the people. And so two of the big reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, come into the scene, and what they start to do is fight back against the power of the church and start to present something that is contrary to what the church at that time held. Martin Luther in 1517 has his 95 thesis that he posts on the door of the church, basically starting the Protestant movement, saying we're not going to be a part of this because this is not in line with the scriptures. Why? Because he was able to read the scripture. He was a priest. And so he now sees that the scripture and what the church is doing aren't in agreement. And so he starts breaking away from those things and starts developing just this reformation. And what happens then is there is a change and a shift that is taking place. No longer is the church in control, but the power is given back to the people. And so now there is the desire to bring the scriptures into the language of the people, but it's met with opposition from the power of the church at that time. And so you have people like John Huss. You have them trying to get the writings that are there and put them out for people to read, but it's met with some problems. Again, they're persecuted. They're actually... uh, martyred many of them and these kinds of things but what starts to take place here and this is what i'm getting to i'm i'm getting to a point i'm sorry it's just a long way to get there is there starts to become this rebellion where you have the church i'm gonna write it in black because this is the bad guy church okay and then we have the reformation i'll just put reform here And so there's this divide and this battle that's taking place. And so what starts to happen here is there starts to be this push against the powers that be, and you start to develop this fundamentalism. Fundamentalism is a movement or attitude stressing strict and literal adherence to a set of basic principles. That's the definition of fundamentalism. It's like we are going to fight against the power of this controlling group and we're going to start a reformation and so we need to get some guidelines that we're going to adhere by to fight against the powers that be we need to have something that we rally around and it has to be clear and so fundamentalism starts to develop this clarity stephen pressfield in his book war of art talks about fundamentalism in review to art, but it's a great definition when he says, fundamentalism is the philosophy of the powerless, the conquered, the displaced, and the disposed, dispossessed. In other words, fundamentalism happens when there is something pushing against these people. It happened with 
the Islamic through the Crusades. They started developing Islamic fundamentalism. Why? Because there was pressure on them. It happened in Germany after World War I when they went through economic disaster. They started developing this fundamentalism to try and establish their nation again. It happens throughout history. It happened to the Hebrew people when they were taken captive in Babylon. And there is now this, we need to have this rallying point of what we are about and hold on to this hope. And so fundamentalism is pushing against the oppression that is coming against them. And so they started to develop this Protestant fundamentalism against the church and power of Rome that started to become predominant, which is something that affects us very much today. A lot of the beliefs that we have came from this fundamentalism that started to be pushed. What are we about if we are not about this and if we are being persecuted by this? We need to hold on to these things. And so in this Reformation, incredible things happened. An incredible movement of freedom started taking place trying to get an understanding of the things that God had given to the people that had been taken away and taken captive by the power and bring them back to the people started to take place and they wanted some guidelines. But with this time, fundamentalism started becoming very heavy-handed. And perhaps it had to because of the oppression that was taking place, being put on it. But we had people like Martin Luther who, who became very dogmatic in certain areas and very anti-Semitic in some areas. Martin Luther said that the Jewish people needed to either be converted or leave the country. Okay, Not a very Christian thing to do. But that was his frame of mind and this point. In fact, his followers actually enacted that. They actually ransacked Berlin and kicked the Jews out and took away their businesses because they were thought of as the enemies of Christ. Why would they think that? Well, remember what they're in and the time that's taking place. And so even though Martin Luther is thought by many historians to be responsible for a lot of the attitude that the German people had, even going into the 1930s in Nazi Germany, he did amazing things. But like David, he was a man. And he was pushing against the pressure that was on him. Same thing with John Calvin. John Calvin, same time as Martin Luther, started developing reformation, started developing some insightful theological principles that we still have today. Many hymns were written, prayers that are beautiful, but it was very heavy-handed. There was one man, Michael Savetis, and he was a Spaniard, and this took place in the 1500s, 1553. Michael Savetis had a different view on the Trinity, a heretical view, that Calvin and those who were part of this Reformation didn't agree with, and so wanting to hold on to their beliefs they had Michael Savetis put to death because of his views on the Trinity. Now, they had him burnt alive. Now, John Calvin didn't want him burnt alive. He thought that was too much. He just wanted him beheaded. 
Now, I share these things about John Calvin, about Martin Luther, not to discredit them because we are indebted to them for many things. What I want to do is present the time and era that this fundamentalism took place and what it started to produce. Because in many ways it was pushing back against the power that was trying to squash them. Remember, many of them were being put to death for bringing the scriptures now to the common people. And so there was tremendous pressure that they were under, but there was also a heavy hand that pushed with them. And so when Martin Luther or John Calvin would read... uh, you know, something about coming out from among them or be separate. This is how they interpreted it. And this translated to a lot of their followers and affected a lot of the beliefs even to this day. The prevailing view at that time definitely influenced them. And so we have something taking place that is good compared to the power that's taking place, but it's still not entirely as good as it could be. And then there's this understanding, this reformation, this movement to regain the the relationship and power of Christ to the people is wanting to get back to where they were originally. The first few centuries produced the most incredible movement of Christ that the world has ever known and has never been matched. Where this faith in Jesus started to infiltrate the world. Nowhere in history has what happened in the first century taken place, and this took place all without what we have today as the Bible. It needed the truths and the things written in the Bible for clarity, for direction, to keep from going astray. But something took place. Why do I mention this? Because this is the perspective that I want to look at. A friend of mine, a pastor friend, wrote something recently talking about if you do not study the entirety of the Bible, then you are not a healthy disciple of Christ. And I wrote him back and I said, I I disagree with that, although I think you should study the entire Bible. The reason I disagree with that is because the earlier followers of Jesus did not have the entire Bible, and yet they were probably the most effective disciples of Christ the world has ever known. So it's not the information of the Scriptures that is necessary. It's like what Paul said You know all about my way, my life, my purpose, my faith. You know all about what I do, the movement that is taking place. It's not just about the writings, it's about the living. The living of the life that then was documented in the writings. And so it's important that we recognize that this movement of God took place without what we know as the scriptures, but it did not take place without the Holy Spirit. There was a dependency upon God. There was a hunger to know the things of God that caused this movement to take place. 
this last week when my wife and I went up to Napa. We were driving up along the Highway 29 there, and there's so many good places to eat, and it's just beautiful. And so someone would recommend going to this one vineyard. They have a delicatessent there, and they have this patio or actually this lawn area that's just gorgeous with these buildings. And so we went to this deli there, and the food is amazing. It's looking at this menu, and they have it all listed out there, and there's, you know, the portobello mushrooms with the sausage and the mozzarella cheese and this mushroom and the penna pasta, and it's all right there where you can see it. I mean, it, we got so much stuff. We just, oh, I'll have a little of that, and I'll have a little of that. Oh, and we got to have that. And so we had all this amazing food, and just reading the stuff just made you hungry, just made you want to eat. But as excited as that was to go in there and smell all the smells and to see the description of all the food and to see it all there, that's not enough. It wasn't until we got their little packet where they have like a couple of plates and some cups and we got to go outside and sit down. It wasn't until we went outside and actually sat down and ate that we were able to enjoy it fully. And I think the perspective that we need to understand is when we look at the scriptures, the scriptures are the menu, but they're not the meal. Your purpose of life isn't just to know the scriptures. The scriptures are there to help us know God. They are breathed by God so that we can have clarity and understanding who he is. They are invaluable, but they are not the meal. And if we think our intention is just to know the Bible, then we will miss the power that took place in the early centuries when the movement of Christ spread like fire because the people knew the difference. There was no scripture to study in the way we do today, but there was the need to live and follow after God. And then the scriptures brought in the clarity of those things. A friend of mine, again, I have a few friends who are pastors who I disagree with, but we're still friends. One of them said that his purpose as a pastor was to teach the Bible. And I can appreciate that. If you've noticed, every time we get together, we open the Bible. I think it's important. But my purpose isn't just to teach the Bible. I feel what my purpose is, is to connect us to the God of the Bible to allow you to hear his voice and allow him to move in your life and to allow this movement to continue. And the scriptures give us the clarity. But it isn't just about knowing the scriptures. I'm not here to just open the Greek and talk about all the words and talk about all these things. I'm not here to be heavy-handed and tell you this is how you have to live. I want you to connect to the God and have a desire. You see, the psalmist declared, or he didn't declare, Read and see that the Lord is good. He said, taste and see that the Lord is good. And there's a difference. One is the menu, one is the meal. 
Taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience God and see that he is good. Have a clear understanding of God given in Scripture and allow it to develop that relationship with God. What we need to do is connect to God and not see the Scriptures as the end result, but see them as the guiding stones that take us to the clarity and the truth of who God is. So many times people will come up to me and they'll say, I, I want to know God's will for my life and I've been reading the Bible and I, and I want to know what God wants me to do. You know, I'm not sure if I should take this direction for my vocation or this direction and I'm reading the Bible and you know, the Bible's not going to tell you whether you should be a painter or a plumber. It's not going to tell you those kinds of things. And I've shared this before. What, what the scriptures do is give us the guidelines. Well, if you're going to be a painter, here's how you conduct yourself according to the scripture. If you're going to be a plumber, this is how you conduct yourself. If you're going to be an artist, if you're going to be an actor, if you're going to be a doctor, whatever you're going to be, the scriptures are the guardrails that show you how to travel down your life. But it's a four-lane highway, and you have the freedom to go down that path how you want. The scriptures will guide you. The spirit will empower you. And God wants you to connect to him so he can direct your life to be all that you can be. That sounds like an army slogan, right? Because he has created us in Christ to walk in good works. To have a life that is meaningful, a life that is purposeful. What is that life? Well, it's not going to be found exactly in the pages, but the character is going to be seen. And then the, the idea of delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. What? Yeah, you see, if you love God, then he's going to empower you to live that life. And that's what we need to connect to. And the scriptures are an important part of that but our focus is God and the life that he has for us and not just the menu. I had a, a woman come up to me years back. She had a dilemma. She was going, a friend of hers had passed away and she was going to awake at the Catholic church and she was no longer a Catholic. And she said, I, I don't know what to do because I know they're going to like kneel and I know they're going to stand up, but I'm not Catholic. I don't know if I should kneel or if I should stand up or not stand up. Let them know that I'm a Christian and I'm not going to do these things. And so I was thinking, okay, how do I answer this question? And I remember there's a passage in Daniel chapter 3 where King Nebuchadnezzar, Tells, Dan, tells all the people, bow and worship this image of me. And if you don't bow, you'll be put to death. And that's where Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den. We know the story. God delivers him because he does not bow. So that scripture comes to mind. And I'm thinking, well, there's a scripture. Don't bow. Stand up there. When they say kneel, say, no, I will not kneel. <laughs> but then... Another passage came to mind that I want to take you to. It's in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's a beautiful story. And I'm just going to start reading. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram, or Syria. 
He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So here's the picture. This commander commander of the Syrian army has taken and raided a village of Israel, taken this girl. She's now a slave and works in his household. So this is a person who is an adversary to the army against Israel. Verse 4, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking him taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took, the clothing was to give as a gift. It wasn't because he needed a change of clothes. Just clarifying that for the lady saying, see, I can take 10 sets of clothes. Verse 6. Sorry, didn't need to go there. Verse 6. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent sent this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, wave his hands over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. It shows that they had TBN back in those times. Verse 12, Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers in Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, Would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know there is no no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elijah said. 
Love this story. Naaman is healed from leprosy miraculously in a silly way. He wants to take dirt because they think of dirt as the place is holy. And so he wants to take dirt from Israel to his place so now he can worship on sacred ground. And he says, when I have to bow in the temple of Ramon because of my job, may the Lord forgive me. And Elijah says, go in peace. And so now we have this quandary. Daniel doesn't bow. Naaman does and gets go in peace. Which is it? What do you do? Do you bow? No bow. Bow? Don't bow. How do you know? Well, you have to know the God who is speaking to be able to know which and when you should bow. See, I, I have four children. One of them might come up to me and say, can I take my bike and go to my friend's house? This is when they're young. Okay, they're not doing that now. Can I take my bike and go to my friend's house? Depending on which child it is and what friend, I could either say yes or no. I don't always say yes. In fact, sometimes I say no. Because why did you say no to him? me? You said yes to him. Well, because he will ride his bike to his friend's house. You will ride your bike from the roof to the swimming pool. <laughs> and I know you, so I'm going to say yes to him, and I'm going to say no to you. Because I know you. So many times we want to go to the scripture and find the black, the white. Bow, don't bow. But what you need to know is the intention and the purpose of God of what is necessary. You see, God is always postured to people coming to an understanding of who he is. And so whatever you can do to bring clarity to that without the compromise of the things he's declared is what he's going to lean for. And so instead of giving this woman Daniel chapter 3, I gave her 2 Kings chapter 5. I said, don't worry about it. You're not bowing and worshiping saints. You're just going there because your friend has passed away. In fact, this can be an opportunity for you to engage and talk with them as opposed to just standing up against them. Why did I give her that information? Because I felt spirit was moving me to help her connect in a way that wasn't going to make her uneasy, wasn't going to make her awkward, wasn't going to make her stand out like a sore thumb. How, how do you know? We want the black and the white. We want Life is not black and white. And we try and go to God and say, this is it. We're going to make our reform set of rules and they're going to be very strict because we need to do these things. And pretty soon what we've done is we've made a new law. We have new regiments that we need to adhere to. And the scriptures now become a chain instead of empowering us. Jesus said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And I think so many times what we can do with the scriptures is the same thing. We, we go to the scriptures because we want to find out about God, and yet God is telling us 
who I am is seen in the person of Jesus. Now I'll give you clarity if you will keep me in mind. See, you want to know, how does God feel about sin? Well, look at Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. What makes God angry? Look at Jesus in the temple overturning the tables when they're trying to make a profit out of the people and use God to manipulate the situation. You want to know what God feels like? Then look at the person of Jesus. In them you think you have life, but that's what testifies of me. And so now we have clarity in the person of Jesus that is revealed in the scriptures. But it isn't there so that we can divide every way we're supposed to live. It's there so that we can have a clear understanding about who he is and allow those things to influence our life so that we can make those kinds of decisions, so that we can engage people in these kinds of ways. You see, what happens is because of this reformation and this heavy-handed that kind of swept through the church, and it wasn't that long ago, what's happened is we've become very against because we're feeling we have to protect our beliefs. You know, we have to protect the sanctity of marriage. Really? Is that our job? I mean, come on. Where was the sanctity of marriage when the Cardassians got married? We had no problem with that. And that was a mockery. You want to protect the sanctity of marriage? Have a marriage that's worth looking up to. We don't need to defend what we're against. What are we for? What is the good news? Because the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword dividing between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. The message of Jesus is powerful. It's not going to be reduced to a list that you follow or don't follow. And so look at the scriptures in the right way. Receive the truth that is in them. Submit to the truth that comes from them. But connect to the God who they point to. Because that's their purpose is to point us to God, not for us to point to them. In Psalm 139, it says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have broadened my understanding. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The scriptures are there to broaden our understanding of who God is. They are there to give us freedom. They are not there to constrain us and stop us. They are there to give us guidelines. You know, there are obvious examples. You know, I want to help out the poor. That's a good thing. God is all for that throughout scripture. You know, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord, the scriptures tell us. Okay, so I'm going to go rob a 7-Eleven so I can give the money to the poor. Well, no, because the scriptures also say don't steal. And so there's that guardrail. Don't go across there. But you can still give to the poor, so try and do it without robbing the 7-Eleven. Maybe just work. There's an idea. In fact, the scriptures say if you don't work, you don't get to eat. Okay? And so allow the scriptures to be guidelines. But 
Allow the Spirit to take the truth of the Scripture and set you free. You see, I, I was struggling and wanting to talk about this, the, the problem that I see where we've had this kind of oppressive heavy-handed understanding of how the scriptures are there to tell you what not to do and tell you what to do. And wanting to convey that, I'm wanting so to convey to you and encourage you, how do you read and love the scriptures? Because I'm not trying to steer you away from them. I want you to embrace them. I want you to hunger for them. I want you to read them. You see, I, I couldn't give this woman advice if I didn't know about 2 Kings chapter 5. If all I knew is someone's told me a story of Daniel chapter 3 and that's the only thing I had, then that's the only thing I might give her. But having a little bit more understanding of how God has worked throughout times, it gave me a little bit more freedom and ability to actually speak into her life and speak into your own life. You see, I want you to run to the scriptures because they can set you free. But I don't want you to think that they are your freedom. It is God who has set you free. And he has declared it through the scriptures. And I know it's a subtle difference, but it is a big difference. One becomes legalistic. One becomes requirements. It becomes a list of what you have to do and what you cannot do. And the other is more of the relationship where God is speaking and what he is speaking is there to give you freedom. Freedom for what? Freedom to connect to the movement that we belong to. Freedom to connect to the God who has poured his love out on us, who has given us of himself through the person of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit to have an understanding of who he is because it's been revealed and it's been understood and circulated. We can trust in it. It is accurate. And it gives us a clear understanding of who God is. So now we can live in it. And so that is why we have the scriptures and that is the perspective that we want to have. I want you to hunger and thirst and read because it will set you free. It will give you understanding of who God is so that you can live the life that God has created you to live. See, you have desires. There are things about you that you want to do. And you don't have to find out, well, how should I do this? I need to find a certain verse that tells me it's okay. No, God has probably already told you it's okay. You just need to do it. And I don't want there to be any restrictions. And why would the scriptures restrict us from doing the good that God wants us to do? You see, man, the Sabbath was made for man, Jesus said, not man for the Sabbath. The scriptures were given to man, not man for the scriptures. Allow the scriptures to connect you to God, to live a life freely that God has called you to live. Run to his commands because in them you will broaden your understanding. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know if the things that I've shared are weighing as heavy on others as they have on me. And I can only speak from my experience and my 
time of being involved in church. Lord, I don't want to do anything that devalues the worth of the Scriptures. But I don't want the Scriptures to be my focus. I want you to remain my focus. And I know there have been times in my life where my focus has been all about just understanding, just studying more. And it's easy for me to become pharisaical, where I know a lot of information, but I never taste and see that the Lord is good. And so what I pray in this area of perspective is that we will see clearly that the scriptures have been given to us so that we could better know you and that we could follow after you with more freedom, that we could run in the ways that you have called us to, that we don't have to stop every step and get permission with every step we take, that you have set our hearts free and the scriptures are our guidelines and you're telling us to go. You've taken off the training wheels and you're running behind us making sure we don't fall to the left or the right. But you're telling us to ride. Ride. You've given us what we need to know. Now help us to live the life that others may know you. May we taste and see that you are good. And we thank you for your Spirit's work in our lives, for the men who have given us the Scriptures. We are grateful. May we use these things wisely and live lives that honor you. I pray in Jesus' name.